Please join me in reading Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a song of a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. (laughs) The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Um, We are sort of on the tail end of the series called The Great Prayers of the Bible, and we'll be wrapping that up as we approach the start of the fall and as everyone kind of gathers back in and, you know, gets their, gets their energy ready for the long fall push. Um, we're going to be doing a new series, and we've got some great ideas, and so we'll be sharing that with you in the coming week, uh, probably this week or next week. Um, so get on our email list if you're not already. I was looking at this particular passage um, this week, and I realized, well, I've preached on this before. All right, you know, no prep week. I can just use what I, I did years and years ago. Um, and I don't know if it just stunk, if it wasn't any good, but I ended up just like almost scrapping the whole thing. And even now, uh, there's lots of like pencil marks and scratches and arrows all over the manuscript. So um, yeah, hang in there with me. We're going to try to get through this one. Um, but I'm really excited about the topic. I just hope that it all kind of coheres together and makes sense. But um, with that in mind, let's pray for our time together. Father, I do pray that you would speak through me. And if your presence is not tangibly felt, if you are not speaking, then we don't need to be here. Um, They don't need to hear from me. Father, we all need to hear from you. And we pray that you would teach us how to rejoice, teach us how to praise, teach us how to worship in such a way and give our lives to you in such a way that it wells up in expressions of joy. Wherever we're coming from this morning, whether we are here for the first time, we're wondering about Christianity, whether we are hoping that all of the questions that we have could be answered here, whether we've been here um, many, many times, this is our common place to be on Sunday, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in a new way, in a fresh way, draw us out of our self-focus and self-importance, and let us see what life in your kingdom and your family could be, should be like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis said that as an atheist, when he first began to consider Christianity, when he first began to draw near to God, one of the stumbling blocks that he found and that was a hurdle for him to get over was this idea of praise, that God wanted and demanded praise from his people. And he says in his commentary on the Psalms, we all despise the man 
who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. But as he continued to search, he learned that those who praise do so not because God has conscripted them into meeting the needs of his own ego, but because something had radically altered at the center of who they were and that they needed to worship. Praise and worship in the Christian sense for him, he began to understand, isn't an action of duty. It's not a job, not so much a demand, but it's an expression of enjoyment. It's an expression of rejoicing. And he reasoned that you actually have to stifle praise of something that you find lovely, that you find attractive. You have to stifle praise of someone that you adore. And this is the type of praise that the Psalms are calling for, that Psalm 47 calls for, that the Bible calls for. And this psalm is written for a community that is made up of people who find and or are finding their joy their delight in God, and are looking for ways to express that. So imagine with me for just a moment something that you find joyful. Maybe your team won the kickoff game yesterday, as mine did. Um, Maybe it's your favorite movie that you've watched recently, maybe rewatched, and it sticks with you. It's carved into your conscious, and you can't stop thinking about it. Maybe it's a romance, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a vista. And this feeling sort of bubbles up within us about these things that we want to share them, we want to tell other people about them, and the internet has given us that opportunity, right, that we can tweet, we can post, we take pictures of our children, our pets, our food, and we broadcast our love for these things, and we want other people to enjoy the joy that we've had in these things. Many of the best works of art are just like this. Paintings, books, music, poetry. They're attempts of someone to bring other people into their experience, into their joy, into their thinking about a certain topic. They have something to say, these painters, these writers, these poets, musicians. They have something to say, and they can't just say it. So they sing it. They paint it. They write it. They show it. The Psalms are like that, written by David and others. They are expressions of joy that just have to come out somehow. They want to be broadcast. The psalmist wants other people to enter into their joy. These writers, you see, have experienced God, and they have something to say, and they couldn't just say it, so they pray it. They sing it, and they invite other people into it. As humans, we ascribe praise to things. But back to this idea, what of a God who longs for our praise, who commands our praise? Friedrich Nietzsche said that he also had a hard time with this idea. I cannot believe in a God who wants to be praised all the time. But think with me for a moment, and if you're a parent, you can probably understand this. Suppose that your child that you love dearly has run away from home and finds the parent figure to sort of replace you, and this person is so much cooler than you. I know that's hard to imagine, but stick with me in this 
illustration for just a moment. This person is so much cooler, and so your beloved child starts dressing like that person, talks like them, emulates them, adopts their lifestyle, their swagger. Everything changes about them because of this person. That's worship, right? Emulation is worship. And you've sacrificed so much over the years to feed and clothe and love your child, and you've worked so that they can have all the things that they need. You've read them books in bed at night. You've cuddled them to give them comfort. You've wiped their tears and their noses. You are there for them when they're scared. But this person has entered into the story, and now there's this distance between you and the child. And I'm talking here not about just this normal process of individuation. This person isn't a positive influence, let's say, for the sake of argument. In fact, they're turning your child against you. They're dangerous. Wouldn't there be an appropriate time as a parent, might it even be necessary at some point to sit down with your child and with tears in your eyes and not a hint of arrogance to say, you know, I have spent sleepless nights feeding you, clothing you, waiting on you to come home when you're late, and there's no one else on earth that loves you like I do. And when then this person gets tired of you and leaves, I will be there for you. So please don't forsake this relationship and emulate this other person and worship this other person. Come back home. Would anyone think that a parent having that conversation with their child was doing that because of some problem with their ego, because they were incomplete. No, it's an expression of love. It's a call back to relationship. Laying out your parental resume in that case is the farthest thing from ego. And over and over in the Bible and in these Psalms, God is saying to us who are His followers, don't forget who I am. Don't forget that I'm the parent who loves you unconditionally, who has been with you in every heartache and every sorrow. Don't worship these other things and look for them, look to them for meaning, but look to me. That's the kind of God that he wants to be and that longs for praise. It's the parent who has cared for, raised us, provided for us, loved us. And therefore, Psalm 47 says, sing a psalm of praise to the Lord. Not because God has low self-esteem, but because he's the parent who has given his life for you and for me. The psalmist praises him because he is a parent, and that's the story of the Bible, of God parenting his children Israel and then his children who get grafted into that. But also the psalmist praises, and he does so specifically here because he is the ultimate king. God is the ultimate king. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great king over all the earth. Now, As Americans, that's very difficult. We had a tea party a couple hundred years ago to throw off the monarchy. We don't like kings. If we want a king, maybe someone like King Charles who kind of just sits in the palace and comes and does ceremonial events to kind of cut the ribbon on our new ventures. We're probably okay with that. But he says, this is the great king over all the earth. 
He is the ruler. And so maybe we have the same problem with God as a king that we did with the God who commands praise. But here is where the story is a little bit different because the Bible is not saying that simply you need a king, but the Bible is saying is that you already have a king or kings. And these kings are more palatable because they're the ones that we choose. But they end up commandeering us and dominating us all the same. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, the gods we worship write their names on our faces. And a man will worship something. That which dominates will determine his life and his character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Emerson is tugging on a pretty central thread of the Bible. And he's not speaking here just of the gods of world religion, alternative gods, but he is talking about anything, any good thing, in fact, that becomes an ultimate thing. So it can be achievement, it can be money, it can be career, and we know that, that those good things become an ultimate thing when we're devastated by setbacks. We're devastated when things don't go quite so well at work, when we begin to see people in our daily work life as either assets or liabilities to our rise to the top. It could be sex or pleasure. And we know these good things have become ultimate things when we can't do without them, when we can't be happy without constant gratification. And when we begin to objectify other people as those who can serve our interests and our pleasure. They can be good things like children, that we can't be happy unless we have children. And we're ruined if kids, our kids don't turn out the way that they, we want them to. And so we crush them with our expectations and they grow up believing that love is very conditional. If you understand those concepts, then this psalm is relevant to you. You can understand the concept here that the Bible's story of sin and redemption, of salvation, doesn't begin, first of all, with the fact that you've done bad things, but that we've all worshipped bad kings. It's not simply, you see, that we've broken the rules, but and now that you need to be now you need to be saved from your bad behavior but it's that we've worshiped things that are bad for us and that we need to be rescued we need to be redeemed and that's why god commands worship for the lord most high is awesome the great king over all the earth he subdued nations under us peoples under our feet that sounds like a, an odd phrase of worship for our modern ears, to praise God for lifting up one nation over another. But what's going on over and over in the Bible and in these Psalms is God rescuing His people from the violent oppression of other nations. He chooses not the powerful of the earth, but He chooses the least and the lost and the oppressed and the fatherless and the friendless to be His people. The power at the center 
of the universe doesn't forcibly coerce. How does he use his power? He carries his people. He liberates the oppressed. And that's what he wants to do for you and for me, is to liberate us from the bad kings that have subdued us and ruled over us. Not because of his ego needs, but because he wants what's best for us. He wants to liberate us and free us. The God of this psalm says, worship me, not because he's insecure, but because he wants to point our hearts to the one place in the universe where love truly is unconditional. The love at the center of the universe, that is himself. And the people who see this and are rescued, if you see yourself as liberated, you worship, you praise. And this psalm even says they rejoice. And this isn't they clap their hands, they shout for joy, not the polite golf clap or the in-town clap, but big, loud clapping. They clap their hands. They shout to God. They cry for joy. That's hard to imagine in our culture and in our own spiritual experiences, but this was real to the psalmist, that he saw this happening. He experienced this. And at some level, this should be something that we should aspire to. We should want. But even if this doesn't literally describe our worship, it certainly can be a metaphor for our lives. That God is something that we shout for joy, that we long to be connected with, that we long to orient our lives around. A life of bowing, if you will, to the King who subdues nations, to the King who subdues the enemies of His children, whether those are real enemies or metaphorical. And so you worship, you praise, you rejoice. It's not acquiescence. I simply had no other choice. He's God after all, so I've got to do this. And it's not, well, the Christian life is not all that fun, but at least I get to look forward to heaven. It's the price of the ticket to heaven. No, He wants for us a life of joy and of praise and of rejoicing. The King over all the earth hasn't crushed you, but saved you. Now, I can think in my own life how rare this sort of exuberant praise is, and it's probably true for you. And so maybe you're thinking, well, this isn't my experience. I'm not even close. And that's why uh, we need gathered worship. Because worship in some ways comes very naturally, but it also takes practice. It takes years of practice because every hour, every minute of the day, you are being conscripted, I am being conscripted into some other story, into the service of someone. Politics wants us to be its foot soldiers. Advertising, products, companies want us to be their foot soldiers. And so we need practice. We need to be rehabituated into the story of the liberation of God and where His people are going. So gathered worship is so vital 
to rehabituate ourselves to the things that we say that we believe. That's why we push community groups as much as we can here, because it's a gathering of friends who are living by an alternative story and living unto and under an alternative king. And we need that plausibility structure of other people doing life together. And that's why we're doing things like the journey, because we all need to learn how to enter into the story. We need to learn how to understand and read and take in God's Word. Now, the Psalms were, in conclusion, Jesus' prayer book. And He comes saying some of the very same things that the psalmist does. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. But if you follow Jesus' story, it's interesting. You would think that the first people that would get that message would be the religious people, would be the people that have been waiting on Messiah. They understand worship. They understand bowing. They know how this thing works. But they don't want anything to do with them. Jesus is not received by the devout, by the religious, but actually by the pagan, the unprepared. Those who should cry out for joy, those who should rejoice because Messiah has come, they cry out for His crucifixion instead. And so, when Jesus, the true King, comes, instead of a golden crown, He gets a crown of thorns. He's the Messiah King who comes representing the God who says, worship Me, yes. And yet, it's not the religious people at all who say yes, but it's the pagans, it's the non-religion, it's religious, the lost, the least the oppressed, they cling to Jesus. And on His cross is nailed in great mockery the King of the Jews. It's a a big joke. You see, the conquering King is the suffering King. The conquering, all-powerful, universal King becomes a dying King. The King that we're called to worship is the King who gives His life away for you and for me. And the one who owns the world, the one we can't bargain with, the one we have no leverage over, the one who could crush us comes instead to save us and to redeem us. The God that the prophet Zephaniah says sings over you. He allows Himself to be crushed so that you can rejoice. And it's only when this really gets into our bones, when it's habituated by practicing worship through days and months and years and doing so in a community, that we can begin to say, the Lord is an awesome God. He is the Most High King because He has become the lowest and He has substituted Himself for us and died. Let's pray and let's Learn to rejoice in that King. Father, we do pray that we would turn away actively from those kings in our lives that come to kill and destroy and those things that we so gladly give our time and effort and energy and worship to that really aren't healthy for us. And I pray that you would help us to identify those things as we 
read and interact with Your Word as we are in friendship and relationship with other brothers and sisters, we pray that we would ruthlessly identify those things that are actually sapping our joy and then invite You into that process of change and of healing, that our worship would spring up from a heart that has been liberated and set free, that we would praise You not simply out of duty, but out of sheer delight. We pray that for this community. We pray that for each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.